Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. O Heavenly Father, our Lord God Almighty, I plead this afternoon, Lord, as we have opened up your word, as we have read it, Lord, that you would be with us now, Lord, you would... Help us to understand, Lord, you would teach us through your spirit as we look this afternoon, Lord, to see the attributes of our Savior. Pray you would teach us, Lord. Pray this afternoon, Lord, for those that are your redeemed. We would learn this afternoon that we would make application of this to be able to leave here knowing more about our Savior, more grateful, having a greater knowledge of the great price that's been paid for us. And Lord, as I think about our singing and the songs we sing of praise, Lord, and the joy we have to be able to come and worship you, I pray this afternoon, Lord, for those that do not know that and do not yet understand and may wonder why and how and the joy we can have. I pray, Lord, in the same way that you soften our hearts and you open our eyes, that you helped us to understand our sinful nature and our need for Christ, our only hope, that you might do that here this afternoon. We pray that you would be with us, Lord, that you would glorify, be glorified by all that's done, that you would teach us this afternoon. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. On Father's Day, we started in the first chapter of Colossians, and there are two ideas that we need to continue to keep in mind as we go through this book of Colossians, the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. We need to consider how those apply to our walk. And as we continue on through this letter, watch for those two themes as Paul addresses the Colossians. In the first 14 verses of chapter 1, Paul demonstrated how we are to pray for one another, how we should love one another, how our lives should look, the hope we should have, and he reminded us of the redemption offered through Jesus Christ. But in verse 15, Paul makes a transition and he starts to describe our Lord Jesus Christ. The very first word of verse 15 directs our attention to what is most important. He, he Christ is Paul's focus. In the next nine verses, Paul describes to us the one by whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. He's going to describe to us some of Christ's nature, his divine attributes, his preeminence, how he is first in everything. And as we read about the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, See if you give Christ the preeminence that he is worthy of. 
This passage can be quite convicting when we consider the implications of these nine verses, but even more convicting after describing Christ's preeminence, Paul goes on to describe how the Colossians once were and how they should now be now that they are in Christ. If we view this letter from a theological viewpoint, we see that Paul starts off this passage with a study of Christ. He does this as he describes the nature and attributes of our Lord Jesus Christ. So why would Paul do this? What is his purpose? I'm of the opinion that he does this because he knows that how we view Christ will impact our walk. What we know and what we think about Christ can shape our entire existence as a redeemed. Paul knows that there are some issues at Colossae that are causing them to get off course from what they were taught. So he starts by explaining who Christ is. He starts by going over his attributes. And once the Colossians understand that, it will get them moving in the right direction and will guide them away from their error. As Paul tells the Corinthians, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Christ is our foundation, and if the foundation is wrong, everything else will get off course from the truth. So these few verses detail Christ's divinity while emphasizing characters of his preexistence and his creative attributes. There's a logical order to these verses. Paul's order is first a detailed description of Christ. And after Paul presents that, he uses what he states about Christ to contrast what the Colossians used to look like, to how they should now look. We see in Colossians, as in other of Paul's writings, how he contrasts the redeemed before and after redemption. He explains exactly what the lost are like prior to Christ and then what the redeemed should look like. And I say should because many times he describes error and then what the Christian walk should look like when free from that error. Usually when he states this, it's because they do not look like they should, they are not all displaying the correct attributes. So as we go through this, think about yourself, how, how you look prior to redemption, how you look now, whether you were all that you should be or not, and consider what you should look like, what you should look like, what your life should look like if you were living exactly as scripture demands of us. Because a correct walk starts with a correct view of Christ. It has to start there. Paul describes attributes of Christ and then attributes of the Colossians after the divine influence of Christ. It's really a Christian's timeline, lives before and lives after Christ. And Paul expected the Colossians to examine themselves against what he taught, against this divine truth. And as recipients of this teaching, if the Colossians examine themselves in light of it, yet saw no difference before and after Christ, the logical assumption is that they were not truly in Christ because nobody can be in Christ and not change. So let's get into this passage this afternoon. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Paul starts off with he, he meaning Christ. Our focus and attention should be on him. He is what is important. This is a monumental statement. Paul started off his letter greeting the Colossians, giving thanks for them and praying for them. He mentions some of their good attributes, their love for all the brethren, their faith in Christ Jesus. Now he goes straight to what's important, the attributes of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is intentional. Paul knows that what we think of God, what we know of God, how we understand his attributes will affect every aspect of our belief. Christ is the image of the invisible God. And reading this one sentence and thinking about the word image takes me back to Genesis and the creation account in chapters 1 and 2. Paul gives us some insight here into creation, some additional information about creation account, more description of what we have in Genesis. And here are just a few verses taken from chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis. It reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, 
Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. If we have any doubt about the nature of Christ, Paul clears it up for us by mentioning his attributes. Only two of an infinite number, but two that will explain to us some vital aspects of his nature. Two very important attributes we need to understand. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, and he, Christ, is the firstborn of all creation. So let's consider those two ideas a little bit further. So first, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. We know from Christ's ministry that many rejected him, despite knowing for millennia that the Messiah would be coming, despite knowing details of where he would be born and the lineage he would come from, many still rejected him. They refused to believe in who he was. Some people just did not understand that Christ is the image of the invisible God. It's definitely a foundational idea. If we misunderstand the nature of God, everything else is going to collapse. We have to understand the Godhead. We need to understand each person of the Trinity. How can we serve a God that we do not know or that we know nothing of? Something obviously happened in Colossae. Some misinformation had to be disseminated among the Colossians. Some error was being spread about Christ. Remember, Epaphras gave a report to Paul, so Paul knows the issues and error within Colossae. Paul is clearing that up and reminding and reaffirming who Christ is. We don't know exactly the error, but we can gather from what he says what happened there. But due to this error, Paul has to instruct them and give them specific teaching to keep them from being misled. He gives them some gentle guidance. We already covered how they were known. They were known for their love for the brethren. Knowing that, I would expect them to lovingly accept Paul's instruction and correction. In areas where they lack knowledge, his letter supplies this knowledge and instruction. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. This is the first attempt in explaining exactly who Christ is and correcting their error. The Colossians must understand Christ as Scripture describes him. If they get off course here, their entire path will be off course. It's no different for us. James uses a concept of a ship's rudder in the third chapter of James. I'm not a sailor, but I'm pretty certain that the rudder of a ship is pretty foundational to a ship's direction. Although the rudder is comparatively small in respect to the rest of the ship, when the rudder is just a little bit off, the entire ship will slowly move off course. It may seem slight at first, but the more the ship sails, the farther off it will be from the correct course. I think we could consider the rudder as foundational to a ship's direction. Foundational things need to be precise. They need to be correct. They cannot be off, even in the slightest. Things that are foundational keep us on the correct course. And Christ is foundational to Christianity. Christ is the basis of Christianity. There is no Christianity without Christ. His importance is stressed within the very way we describe ourselves as Christians, as followers of Christ. When we are off in who we think he is, when we misunderstand his attributes, we too will start to veer off course. So we must be precise in our understanding of him. And that's why Paul starts off expounding his attributes to the Colossians. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the image of God the Father. We know that scripture describes God the Father as a spirit that no man has seen him, and we also know that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. This idea may seem like a paradox to our finite minds that Jesus Christ is the visible image of an invisible God. But let's consider the phrase image and examine what this word image represents. Let's consider the implications of how this word is used. 
In Greek understanding, an image was not something distinct from the object it represented. He is the image of the invisible God, stresses the equality of Christ with God. As an image of God, Christ is an exact, visible representation of God. He is an exact image of him. We don't need to wonder what God the Father is like. What Christ says and does exactly represents God the Father. It tells us that the nature of God the Father was perfectly revealed in him. The invisible has now become visible. The image of the, old, of the God of the Old Testament can now be seen in Christ. Christ is the image of the invisible God. He and the Father are one. Jesus described himself this way in John 8. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also because he is the image of God the Father. Christ is the image of the invisible God. This emphasizes his divinity. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ is the likeness of God the Father. He is an exact, visible representation of him. What does that tell us? Paul uses this phrase to stress the equality between God the Father and God the Son. To see Christ is to see the Father. John 14 states, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And this verse correlates with what John stated in John 1. No one has ever seen God. This is referring to God the Father, who is a spirit. We cannot see a spirit, but Jesus Christ was in the likeness of the Father as God in the flesh. Jesus is God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Paul's point here is that Jesus Christ was given to us as the image of the invisible God, so we will know the will of God the Father is delivered through God the Son. God was manifest in the flesh and he dwelt among us. He revealed to us all that we need to know about him. And Paul moves on to a second idea. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. As it reads in the ESV, we may not get the meaning of what Paul's stating. Other translations read firstborn over creation. And I think that's the idea behind the second attribute of Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn over creation. But we need to make a distinction how we view this word firstborn, how it's being used here. Mainly how it would have been understood by those hearing it versus us. In our minds, in our culture today, we view firstborn only in describing when a child was first to be born among all the children. This is not describing Jesus as a created being. The first part of this verse was clear in stating that he is God, so he cannot be created. So what did firstborn mean to those in Paul's day? The Greek word translated here, firstborn, comes from two root words, from first and to bear or to bring forth. So first, to bring forth. It implies a priority in time, but is somewhat different from how we would use it today. Paul chose this word to establish his idea of the preeminence of Christ. Firstborn gives the idea of being preeminent, an idea also presented in verse 18 in the overall idea in these verses. So preeminence meaning surpassing all others. Preeminence meaning superiority. Preeminence meaning to hold the highest rank. Preeminence meaning to have first place. Paul describes Christ as firstborn, distinguishing him from all created things as being before them in time and as having supremacy over them all. He has precedence over all in both time and status. He is before everything. Paul is specifically stating Christ's supremacy over creation. He is the one preeminent over all of creation. He is the firstborn over creation. As one commentator stated, this phrase displays his humanity. 
We see the supremacy of Christ, his preeminence through scripture. In one place this is described as in Hebrews 2, where it states, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. God crowned Jesus Christ with glory and with honor and put everything in subjection under him. He left nothing outside of his control. God crowned Jesus Christ with glory and with honor and put everything in subjection under him. God the Father left nothing outside of his control because Christ is preeminent. So let me summarize this first. There were two very important concepts presented here. First, Jesus is a visible representation of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. And second, he has superiority over everything because by him all things were created. Paul adds another description of Christ as a creator. He describes him as the author of creation. Christ is supreme over creation, and that makes sense as he was the author of creation. So we have two more concepts presented here. First, that everything was created, was created by him. Does anything but God have a creation ability? No, this is another distinction of God, the ability to create ex nihilo, out of nothing. All things were created. What exactly does all things include? What does Paul mean by all things? He expands what he means. He says those in heaven and those on earth, those visible and invisible, those on thrones, those dominions, those rulers, those authorities. So that's a pretty thorough description. But if that isn't enough, he says all things were created through him and for him. I cannot help but think of the first three verses of the book of John. They correlate to what we see presented by Paul here. And John states, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. These very same concepts are stated by John. In the beginning was Christ. He was with God in the beginning, and he made everything. There was nothing made outside of him, absolutely nothing. He created everything that was created. He is the author of creation. So, so far, only two verses that we've seen important attributes. So far, we can conclude that Jesus is God, that he has superiority over everything, and that he created everything. The second idea here, the last two words added on to describe the reason for creation, it is for him. Everything in heaven and earth was created by him. This explains the purpose. Also, all things were created for him. And this ties in perfectly to verse 15 and describes Jesus Christ as the author of creation. He has sovereignty over all and we were created for him. And another view of this idea on being created for him is presented in the first chapters First chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one, it says, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We were predestined according to his purpose who works all things according to his will. All things were created for him. So if we are considering the idea of anything having preeminence over Christ, we would have to think first that nothing is preeminent over God. So Paul established that Christ is God and therefore nothing is preeminent over Jesus Christ. We see the, pre the supremacy of Christ and how everything revolves around him. Everything is by him and everything is through him and everything is for him. But Paul's not finished yet. He says, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. 
So in 17 is kind of a summary of what, he, what he's stated already. Two more concepts, two more descriptors of Christ. First, he is before all things. I think there are two applications here, both a priority in time and a priority in rank. First, he was before all things in the sense of time. He always existed. A common question for non-believers to ask is who created God? And that shows a misunderstanding of who God is and a misunderstanding of his nature. It's an intellectual misunderstanding because God has no creator or he would not be God. So once again, if we go back to the rudder of a ship, if it gets a little bit off, then the entire ship gets off course. If we misunderstand that Jesus is God, we get off course. It may seem slight at first, but down the line, we're totally off course and misguided. We are lost if we misunderstand him. Jesus Christ was not created. He is the author of creation. He is the creator. There was never a time when Christ was and the creator cannot be created since he is before all things. In the beginning, God. I don't think our minds can even comprehend an infinite existence. But when you've always existed and will continue to always exist, there's no need for time. Only those created revolve around the concept of time. But there was a time when the earth and everything in it was created by him because he is before all things in time. But he's also before all things in rank and priority. He is before all things in importance. Paul states that Christ is the image of God the Father. He created all things and he is before all things. He, he always existed. In the beginning was the word, in the beginning was Christ. So he is before all things. He is above all things. He existed before all things, and he is the creator of all things. And second, in him, all things hold together. What he has created, he also sustains. Acts 17 reads, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, in him we live and move and have our being. So Christ holds all things together. Jesus is God, a visible image of the invisible God, he is overall, he created all, he existed before all, and he sustains all. Are you starting to get Paul's picture of Christ's supremacy and sufficiency? Are you picking up on his focus? So what impact does this have on us? Paul answers that for the redeemed. The one that we have been describing is also the one that instituted the body that we are part of. This very body of believers, though that, those that are redeemed and who assembled together from this church that he created. And he adds more description in verse 18 as he elaborates some more. He said, he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Have you ever considered the heavenly design? The hand of God in the way he established his church. Have you ever considered the perfection the creation of the church. Christ is over it. He's the head. He is a shepherd, but he is also left over the body under shepherds whom he is called to tend to his flock that is his until his return. But each of us has a function within this body as members of the body. A wonderfully designed creation with Jesus Christ as the head of this body. His body, parts made up of every one of the redeemed that are gathered here joined to this body. We should not sit here autonomous trying to individually exist in this building. Every one of the redeemed have a function within this body with Christ being our head. 
We are here to be equipped, each one of us, for the work of the ministry. Each one of the redeemed joined to this body are to be equipped for the work of the ministry, for the building up of this body of Christ. And it's not by chance that we are members together. It's not by chance that the body is built as it is. His providence, his divine wisdom brought us together to form this church, his church. We are here so we can be equipped, so we can serve while building up the body. We are each to be equipped so we can serve inside and outside the body. We see the example of how Christ taught the disciples. They were first disciples. They first learned and Christ taught them, but it did not end there. Once they were taught, they became apostles and they were sent to teach others. The apostles started the process in teaching others and we continue on with teaching others. We start off learning so we can then be sent to teach what we learned and to share with others. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He was taught by Christ, and now he is teaching others. We see the heavenly design and perfection of what God created in his church, a divine creation with an eternal purpose. I'm amazed at what I, when I consider what he left for us in the creation of the church. And that's why it's so important for us to adhere specifically to what he intended for his church. It's not something we can add to or take from we were given specific instruction on how it's built, how it is led, and how it is sustained. Christ is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. This echoes what was stated in verse 15. He is the firstborn of all creation. To better understand this statement, firstborn of the dead, let's look at what Paul states elsewhere. He says in 1 Corinthians, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And Acts 26 makes the same reference to Christ where it reads that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Jesus is preeminent in creation and he is preeminent in the new birth. The church is the body of Christ. All the redeemed make up the different parts of the body, but the one in charge, the preeminent one, the one over everything is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the beginning he is the cause of all, and he is the head of the church. Once again, we see connections back to verse 15, where it stated he was firstborn of creation, referring to his position over all creation. Here it states he's the firstborn of the dead. This emphasizes Christ's position. But don't be confused by the statement. It simply emphasizes Paul's intent in the entire passage that he is chief over all. There are none higher than him. He is preeminent. Christ is preeminent, that in everything he might be preeminent. The idea started in verse 15, Christ preeminence. Once again, preeminence meaning surpassing all others, superiority, to hold the highest rank, to have first place. In every single thing, Christ has superiority. He is superior in creation. He is superior in the church. He is superior in everything. He is preeminent. In the first creation we read of in Genesis, and he is preeminent in the new creation and rule of his church. So what point is Paul trying to get through to the Colossians to us in these three verses? He's preeminent in all things. There's nothing in which he is not preeminent. He is preeminent, period. I think Paul's pretty clear nothing is superior to Christ, but he moves on to another one of his attributes. He says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He goes back to verse 15 again and elaborates some. He is the image of the invisible God, and in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If there are any disputes of the deity of Christ and his relation to God the Father, Paul clarifies that. He intended this instruction to clear up the error, to equip those who are misled with the truth about Christ. 
The fullness of divine being, the fullness of God was in Jesus Christ. Jesus was not part God. He did not just contain some attributes of God, some natures of God. He was fully God and fully man at the same time. The fullness of God dwelt in him, thus he was fully God. God's entire fullness dwelled in Christ. If you think about these statements, it makes one wonder what the exact issues were in the Colossian church to prompt these statements. Paul's not just randomly stating these things. He's specific and he's particular in what he's addressing. There had to be a connection to the error in the Colossian church, and he's chosen these ideas to correct the error. And he goes on. He continues, he says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Through Jesus Christ, God reconciled us by means of the blood of Jesus. In Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus, we have reconciliation. God the Father made peace with the redeemed solely due to Christ and the blood of his cross. Jesus is God. He is over all. He created all. He existed before all. He is the head of the church. He's fully God. And he is the means by which we are reconciled to God by his blood. The redeemed are not under God's wrath any longer. We are reconciled by him. These six verses have great implications for the redeemed. Let's consider what Paul states and what we have in him in Christ. Since Christ has created all, there's nothing greater than him. Since Christ is God and has preeminence over all, we have nothing to fear in him. Since Christ is our means of reconciliation to God the Father, then we are assured of salvation in him. Since Christ is the head of this body, since Christ is the head of this church, this body has no worries when we are in him. And since Christ has made peace by the blood of his cross and has taken on the wrath of God the Father for us, we too can have peace in him. This should have been a comfort to the Colossians as much as it is to us. Paul was not just stating theological truths for the sake of argument. He was stating these things to the correct error and to build up people totally resting in him and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul laid out such a good description. It leaves us nothing else to do but to be at peace and to be secure in him. And that's how we should be. That's how we should be if we are trusting in him as we should. But let's be reminded of where we once were. Let's be reminded of where we came from. Let's be reminded of where we should no longer be. Let's be reminded of who we turned from once we were in Christ. He started by describing Christ, and now he turns to describe the Colossians. We see a shift from creator to creation. He says, in you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Paul just finished describing our Redeemer, and now he turns to the Colossians. He starts with, and you. And you, Colossians, let me now describe you in contrast to Christ. The redeemed were once estranged from God, born at enmity with him. We all start off alienated and enemies to God. Every single one of us, there are no exceptions. Both the lost and the redeemed start off with the same disposition in opposition to God. The disposition of our minds were hostile toward God, simply meaning that by our sinful nature, we hated God. Contrary to what most people would say when asked if we are inherently good, we are not just good people who are a little misled. Every thought in our heads were once hostile toward God. Our sin estranged us from him. We were separated by that continual desire to sin, always doing evil deeds. Our works were continually evil. 
And I could guess right now that there's some here probably questioning my statement about how inherently evil we are, and yet others are probably thinking of some scripture that supports this claim of our wickedness. Perhaps you're thinking of Genesis 6, 5, where it describes man right before the flood. And it reads, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In Psalm 14, 2 and 3, it gives an apt description of us. It says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Remember, Paul's describing the Colossians and those of us that are redeemed. He is describing us prior to reconciliation. This is how we once were. He describes our former state. But this is a reminder to them about the transformation, about being made a new creature in Christ, how the old things have passed away. This is also a reminder to us of how we once were. We were all full of evil thoughts, doing evil works. But thank God for the lamb that was slain, lest we continue on as the enemies of God. Without Christ, there would be this very day an enemy of God, fueled by my sin, always doing evil deeds. But Christ intervened. God the Father provided one that could perfectly uphold the law, one that would always do the things that please the Father, one that would reconcile us to himself because he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So reconcile means to set up a relationship of peace not existing before us. So let's apply that so we can understand that in a biblical context. I think a good description of reconciliation is how Paul describes it in Romans 5. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul is saying that while we were dead in our sins, with no way out, God in his love sent Jesus to die for us. Without Christ, we would have faced the wrath of God. We were born as enemies of God, sinful and without hope, but the redeemed were reconciled to God by Jesus. The relationship of peace that never existed before due to our sin is now established. Jesus is a means of reconciliation. We are either enemies of God and we all are from birth or we are the beloved of God. And Paul uses that contrast. If you think about that, we are born enemies of God. But through Jesus, we are reconciled. That relationship of peace due to Christ taking on our sin is now in place. God has laid aside his wrath from the redeemed because it was placed on Christ. Reconciliation is the change made in man through conversion. Our guilt is removed and it brings us peace as a new creation in Christ. We can see a clear picture of us before reconciliation and after. And Paul describes reconciliation to the Corinthians in another way in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So God reconciled the redeemed to himself through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are now new creations. We are new creatures and our sins are not counted against us. They were placed on Christ. Christ, through his body of death, reconciled the redeemed to God the Father. And the end result of this reconciliation is that one day we will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach. So let that be a comfort to us Christians. We battle this flesh day after day. At at times we feel defeated. But those efforts are going to pay off. Even among our failures, he has reconciled us and he will present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We consider that we were born estranged from God, enemies to God, hostile in our evil minds. Yet one day through what God the Father has done for us through God the Son, we will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach due to him, due to Christ. None of this is possible without Christ. These are truths that cannot be denied, but Paul leaves a stipulation. He tells us what we need to do. He says the only way we'll be presented holy, blameless, and above reproach is if we continue in the faith. Why is it? Is Paul teaching a work salvation? No, nobody, not even Paul, had the ability to tell if someone was truly redeemed. We are known by our fruits and someone who lives their life according to Scripture, walking in a way pleasing to God, displaying those attributes Paul would describe in chapter 3. Those were outward indicators of an inward change of true repentance. So think about it. If I proclaim to be a follower of Christ and I stop attending church, If I get deeply involved in habitual sin, if I look exactly as I did prior to a professed salvation, what would you think? You would say that we are known by our fruits and my fruit showed that I was still serving Satan and not God. Remember Paul's prayer in verse 10 earlier in this chapter. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The way we live our lives should reflect an inward change through Jesus Christ. So how should our faith look? Paul states three words describing how our faith should be. He says it should be stable. This word refers to a foundation. It means that our faith should be grounded. It should be firm. He says it should be steadfast. It should be settled and not shifting. So our faith should be firm and settled in the gospel, not shifting, not moving, not wavering, steady and firm in what we have been taught When we face those that teach things contrary to scripture, we should not shift from the gospel we have both heard and read. We should not be shifting from the hope that we have, that hope laid up in heaven for all of the redeemed. The apostle Paul became a minister of this gospel. It's like Paul is reminded of Colossians in the way he writes these verses. In order to show them their error, he first describes in detail who and what Christ is. Then he describes how they used to be in order to remind them what they were like prior to Christ. And finally, he ends with how they should be. He gives them a reminder what they should look like of how they should look if they are walking worthy of Christ. It's a fitting reminder to us all. When we stick to the gospel, when scripture is our foundation, we cannot be swayed. As the song states, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. So let's review the six truths about Christ as presented by Paul in these nine verses. First off, Christ has created all and there's nothing greater than him. 
Christ is God and has preeminence over all, and we have nothing to fear in him. Christ is our means of reconciliation to God the Father, and we are assured of salvation in him. Christ is the head of the body. Christ is the head of this church. Therefore, this body has no worries since we are in him. And Christ has made peace by the blood of his cross and has taken on the wrath of God the Father for us. Therefore, we can have peace in him. And we've been reconciled through Christ's death and we will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul is addressing error in the church at Colossae. He's doing that by building a foundation in Christ. He's doing that by reminding them of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. He's doing that by explaining the transformation of man after he meets the risen Savior. It is only Christ that can transform those hostile in mind. It's only Christ that can transform those doing evil deeds. It is only Christ that can transform those alienated from God into new creatures in Christ. All things were created by him and the redeemed are transformed through him. Do we have a proper understanding of Christ? Do we know him? Do we know his nature? Do we know his attributes? Has our foundation been established in him? How do our lives look? Jesus is a visible representation of the invisible God. And Paul emphasized Christ's supremacy and his sufficiency. He is preeminent and he is sufficient in fulfilling all that we need. Christ is supreme and Christ is sufficient. And our hope does not lie in what we can do. It lies in what Christ has done. We must be stable and steadfast with our hope firmly planted in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a filled passage. As we try to comprehend in our finite minds an infinite God, to try to understand and fully grasp the, the Savior who died, who bled for us, who pride redemption and reconciliation. Lord, I think of the, the Colossians and the error, the things that were spread to give them a false picture of Christ. I pray, God, as we've been given the gift of Scripture, we have this available to us. We'd be like those Bereans and check to see that these things are so, that we wouldn't be swayed, that we would have our foundation in the Scripture. I pray, Lord, as we think about where we once were, it will remind us of who we should be. Help us to walk worthy of the Savior that bled and died for us. Lord, as I think about this great establishment of this church, all of us, Lord, you brought together out of your omniscience and your sovereign will to come together to be parts of this body. We would take that serious, Lord. We would be equipped for the work of the ministry. We would build up this body Think about those apostles. I think about Paul and going and he gave instruction. And when there was error, he went back to teach. He was taught by Christ and he went out himself. Example for us, Lord, I pray as we learn here, we would go out and share this, Lord. Share it with our family and our neighbors and our co-workers. 
Lord, you've given gifts to this body. You've given men and women with abilities to function, to be able to work together. We pray you'd build this place into a, into a church that is pleasing to you. Lord, as I think about the attributes of our Savior, we're ever grateful and cannot comprehend an infinite God. I pray again, Lord, for those that do not know you, those that know not redemption, those that are still enemies with you. We know, Lord, that you seek us out. We know, Lord, that you soften our hearts, that you give us repentance. You provided the sacrifice. You give us faith. You provide all we need. I pray that you would open up eyes, Lord, in the way that you transformed us, that you might transform those that do not know you. Lord, I pray as we come in here each week, we long for the time to open up your word. We long for the time to sing songs of praise to you. We long for the time to grow in sanctification, to get to know one another, to share with one another, to help one another. God, I pray you would teach us more about you. I pray you would build this place into a place that is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.